0: what I think people can do. I think your book is a good study guide for teams to get it for the team and to have conversations once a week about a different chapter. I mean, nobody has to read the whole thing if they don't want to all at once, although it's an easy read. But literally to have chapter discussions among your team to focus on what are we really saying and what might we do differently and how can we each look at our own sales interactions that we've had that have been successful in this past week or have not resulted in the you know, the outcomes that we'd like to see and how can we take some of the ideas in the book and leverage them. Hi,
1: friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Jill Conrath. Jill is the author of four best-selling sales books and an international keynote speaker and sales advisor, And today we're having a conversation about how to improve your sales performance and how to take a more modern approach to selling, what I call how to sell without selling out. Now, sell without selling out is not coincidentally also the title of my new book, my third book, that is being published next Tuesday, February 22nd. Now, to sell without selling out means how to achieve success in sales by helping your buyers achieve the things that are most important to them without engaging in the obsolete and legacy sales behaviors that your buyers reject. so we to be talking about those and much, much more, but before we get to Jill, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you very much. All right, let's jump into it. Jill Conrath,
0: welcome back to the show. Hey, it's fun to be here. It's been a while.
1: It has been a little bit a while, but it's not been too awfully long, so what are the, how are things with you these
0: days? Things are wonderful. It's a beautiful, cold day here in Minnesota. Single-digit temperatures? No, it's actually beautiful. It's almost 40.
1: Wow. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So, here, here's a question. So, yeah, you and I both grew up in that part of the country, me in Wisconsin, you in Minnesota. So, have the winters changed a lot?
0: Have the winters changed or have I changed this is sometimes a different question.
1: <laughs> well, that's right, both, but...
0: Have uh, the winters changed? It's nice right now, but tomorrow the temperature will be going down below zero. And it'll be freezing cold and I won't be going out at all.
1: Yeah, well, my sister still is back there. She just talks about, yeah, you know, not as much snow in general as when we were growing up.
0: I don't know, but when let me just say that when I was growing up, the snowbanks were really tall. Yes. And I really wasn't at that time and so yeah. I think perspective is part of it too. And I, <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I try to tell my kids stories about waiting for the school bus when it's 20 degrees below and yeah, I don't and think that, they A, I don't think they believe that cuz they always follow that up with yeah, and it was uphill both ways. And it's like <laughs> yeah. Okay, well let me
0: tell you a quick story on that. Okay, when I sure. was in high school, girls had to wear skirts to school. Had to wear skirts twenty degree yeah. below wind chill or twenty degrees outside, below zero, standing at a bus stop with a little short mini skirt on it was freezing. So the girls in my senior class planned a rebellion. We were right. all going to wear pants one day. And I was one of the only three girls out of a. Almost 200 that showed up with pants on that day, and I got myself suspended for breaking school rules. <laughs> so that's my best cold winter story.
1: <laughs> yeah, when you think about it, I mean, it's just, yeah, times change. Yeah, you yeah. said girls had to wear dresses or skirts, skirts or whatever in my
0: school. Cool. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. Couldn't wear jeans.
0: Boys couldn't wear jeans in my school either.
1: Wow.
0: We were supposed to dress properly.
1: This was private school or public school? Public school. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I remember, yeah, my older brother, one of my older brothers, uh, when he got to high school, yeah, big, this actually went to federal court about student dress codes because yeah, students were rebelling about the fact that, yeah, I don't know if it was jeans. I think it had to do with facial hair, actually. It was oh. one of the big things. hmm couldn't have Uh facial hair. (laughs) Think about that.
0: Times have changed. So when you ask about things, it's all about perspective and where you were and what the world was like then. And sometimes you just don't know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, so um, we thought we might sort of flip the script a little bit today. We're going to talk about... um, I mean, indulge in a bit of self-promotion and talk about my new book. Uh, Sell without selling out. A guide oh, to success you? on your own terms.
0: Yes, it's a great book. I know. Important I had point. a I had a Showing chance you. to read it early before anybody else has seen it, and it's really good. And that's what and that's what's fun to talk right. about. Yep.
1: All right, let's do. Yeah, because I mean, I I was thrilled to have you be one of the first ones to read it because uh, yeah, yeah I've depended on your counsel over the years. So. Um,
0: so let me yes, ask you this. Okay, let's sure. let's take the title. Let's explain the title first.
1: Yeah, so you know, one of the genesis of the book was coming from, you know obviously my experience of long years working in so many different companies, about sales, but also all these conversations I've had on my podcast over the last six years. Mm-hmm. and looking the data that exists and saying, "Gosh." we don't seem to be getting any better at this whole business of B2B selling, despite all the advantages that exist for us. And why is that the case? And also then looking at data that talks about how important the buying experience is that the buyer has with the seller as a function of the decision that they make, their purchase decision. It's actually, it's one of the the most dominant single factor that exists in the buyer's purchase decision and so when you look at those numbers and you say, okay, we got declining quota attainment, we got according to Forrester, we got win rates dropping. Gartner talking about, you know, this buying experience is is not good. And you know, eighty percent of c level executives report they get no value from their meetings with sellers. <laughs>
0: it's pretty miserable, point, isn't it? It was like, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, and I would agree with you, Andy. Let me just stop and say I totally agree with you that this is happening. I see it out there, and I see people not getting better at selling. I see a lot of things happening that means that salespeople are actually getting worse. Worse. worse right. Worse and at I, a time when when the buyer is demanding more of them, and companies are telling people to do more, more. And they're pushing that more right. button all the time right. as opposed right. to the better button.
1: Yeah, well, as I like to say, is before you can sell more, you have to sell better. <laughs> and so, <Yeah. laughs> um, so it was based on all that. It's like, what's going on, right? What what's happening? And we certainly see this in with some of the use of the way, or some of the ways that technology is being used today. Is is as my friend Chris Beal, who's a CEO of Connect and Sell, says, is you know what the technology's done is if you we're bad at selling before it, it amplifies the bad. Oh, it sure <laughs> does. He uses the term. It amplifies the suck as he talks about, <laughs> <laughs> which is more descriptive. And and what is that? You know what are buyers rejecting? And buyers talk about, yeah, we don't really want to talk to sellers. I don't believe that's what they're actually saying. What they're actually saying is, we don't want to talk to sellers who can't help us accomplish We, don't want, to talk talk we, to we don't want to talk to right. sellers who are
0: bad. We don't want to talk to sellers who are promoting their product. We don't want to talk to sellers who are sending out these email streams of you know every two days with a new cadence that it says the same old thing.
1: Right. So, I took all those legacy sales behaviors that are sort of cringeworthy, and i I called them sell that's selling out. When you when you do that, when you're you centric, seller centric as opposed to buyer centric, you're selling out. And you're not worthy of the time and attention of your buyers. Because there's a basic bargain that's struck with buyers when you sell to them is they're gonna invest their time and attention in you. What are they getting in return? And if they can't earn a return on that time and attention because you're selling out well, then you get no more time. And you then start forcing the buyers to say, "Was well, there a way for us to accomplish this task without talking to sellers?
0: And that's pretty scary if you're in the sales profession or if you're running a sales organization to think that people would circumvent your, what you consider your best resources. But they're not.
1: Yeah. Well, they would find so little value. Yeah. And what you as a seller bring to the table to offer them that mm-hmm. they would prefer to do it solo. Yeah. And so, my baseline contention is, I'd be interested in your opinion on this, is that, again, as I mentioned before, I don't believe that buyers don't want to talk to sellers. They just don't want to talk to sellers who waste their time and can't help them accomplish what they're trying to accomplish, which is to make an informed purchase decision.
0: I would agree with that entirely. And is that what you call selling in?
1: So selling in Let's then
0: find that, yeah.
1: Yeah. So selling in, I frame in the book there's sort of two opposite ends of a spectrum right. in terms of your perspective. If you think your job as a seller is to go out and persuade someone to buy your product, then that's selling out. Because that's not your job. That's all about you. That's not about the buyer. Whereas if you think your job as a seller is to go out and listen to your buyers to understand what's the most important thing to them and then help them get that, then that's selling in, right? It's all about the buyer. How can you help them achieve what they want to achieve? And that's that's the stark framing of the book. And you can be a sellout or you can be a sell-in. And what, we, what I provide in the book is a path to learn how to sell in.
0: And, and I really think selling in is key, too. And I never heard that term used before your book, which is you know why it's kind of fun to hear mm. you using that, but It involves a whole different skill set for sellers than than many of them are being taught today, or the the kind of behaviors that are being reinforced in sales organizations.
1: But I think the key thing, as I point out in the book, is that the selling out behaviors, those are learned behaviors. Mm-hmm. And what I was emphasizing in the book is what I call the four pillars of selling in, which are connection, curiosity, understanding, and generosity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Those are innate human behaviors.
0: We I all love come that. I, I, seriously, I love that. They're innate human behaviors. It's what we would do if we were talking to another human being as opposed to exactly. a prospect.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we're wired to want to connect with other people. We're wired to to be curious. We use our curiosity as humans to navigate the world around us and things that are unfamiliar to us. We do it every day. We, we use our understanding to make sense of this world that we're navigating as well as to connect with other human being on a, you know, an empathy level, if you will. Mm -hmm. And we're wired to give, you know, we're tribal, tribal beings. (laughs) And we shared collectively among ourselves. We, giving made us feel good. And so, The conundrum, as I always was sort of pointing out, is like, okay, well, we we teach people to do these things that just are not natural for them, and to do it in ways that that people universally resist, instead of saying, let's lean into these innate human behaviors. When you say
0: people naturally resist, are you talking about the sellers resisting it, too? Because at some level, when I was trained on how to sell, I had a (laughs) gut-level, reaction. You know, and I, I was supposed too. to have closing techniques and objection handling techniques, and you know, I was supposed to be able to do all that, and and I had a gut reaction, and so.
1: Why well, did I? I mean, I, I had the story early in the book about going to my first sales training class for this company I worked for, Burroughs at the time, second largest computer company in the world, now Unisys, and sitting in these, their one of our two national training centers. This was in Pasadena, California. With a group of, I don't know, 30 other new salespeople from around the country, watching these videotapes of uh, this guy whose sales training class they had bought, kind of Lee boy, was this slick hair, came across sort of an evangelical preacher type. Just, you know, the, the techniques and the ways they were talking about, just, I was like, you, I was like, what human being acts this way? <laughs> and it feels
0: so manipulative manipulative yeah,
1: it just like, was so counter to anything I was yes. comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Clearly you had the same thing.
0: I had the same reaction exactly and I and I never sold one of the things what I come from came from Xerox I mean they did teach us about questioning, mm-hmm. which was a topic that I was already really interested in the subject of question because I, I right. found that when I would ask people questions I could learn so much. That would be helpful, you know. It was like mm-hmm. it expanded everything. I think that's you know one of your, you know, your pillar of curiosity relates somehow to that, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I when I first started selling after I came back from that training class and was determined to sort of find a way to do it, that made your sense way. for me, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. But I had this great early education, business education because I was selling. So there's good sized computing systems to mostly to the construction industry. I was talking to CEOs and entrepreneurs that started these sizable construction companies. And I always wonder why did they give me the time of day? Because I looked sixteen. I was twenty one, but I looked sixteen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I knew almost nothing about business and certainly very little about the product I was selling at that point in time.
0: And not a lot about what, construction
1: either. And nothing by construction, yeah. and yet they gave me their time. And An answer I, why? Because I was sincerely interested in learning about what was important to them, and you know they didn't cut me off. I not like you know it's not like I didn't have extra time for or they didn't have time to give me for answering their questions. It was people like it when people are interested in what they're interested in,
0: and that and, creates the connection you talk about too. Then. Because I know you're a good soul who's who's really concerned about them, yeah,
1: yeah, and yeah, I came out of school probably similar to you you I know your interested in curiosity, and yeah as I said, I' had no discernible job skills coming out of college, what I had was insatiable curiosity. I loved yeah. to learn about know the world around me, and I was pretty competitive, so mm-hmm. it made sort of a good combination of going to go into sales
0: and nobody would have thought that would be a good background. You didn't know some yeah. of those things and you were not willing to, I mean, you say in your book persuasion is a blunt in- instrument of last resort.
1: It is, right? I mean, so if you think your job is to go out and persuade somebody to buy your product, in yeah. <laughs> fact, though, you're going out thinking that that you're the answer to everybody's problem. Yeah, And and so your job then is whether it's to manipulate or, in the case of like the training videos I watch, somewhat sort of bully people into making decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you know the probably. classic the classic objection handling technique they taught was, well, let's just suppose that wasn't a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> then would you buy from us? Oh my god! That was, that was the classic thing, right? Let's <laughs> just suppose that wasn't a problem. Yeah. So, yeah, you're going to adopt one set of behaviors if you think that's your your mission is to persuade somebody. As opposed to go out and I said,
0: listen and learn. When I feel that people are trying to persuade me. My defenses go up. It's like I put a wall up in front of me and I block what they're saying and I become disagreeable. And if I feel the push. Right. And so
1: Well, Jonah Berger, you, who yeah. wrote this book called The Catalyst, which I reference in the book, yeah. a professor from Wharton, and this is a book about persuasion mm-hmm. uh, or influence. And He he says, uh, based on studies, that as humans, universally, we resist being persuaded, just as you talked about. So it makes perfect sense, then, that we spend billions of dollars a year to train sellers how to be persuasive.
0: It makes what sense?
1: (laughs) I was kidding. (laughs) That's that's sort of the joke on us, right? Yeah, right. let's spend all this money to train salespeople in a behavior that their customers Mm -hmm. universally resist. That makes
0: all the sense of the world, and then we have them do more of it.
1: And then we have them do a double down on it, yes. Yeah,
0: double down. We're low on prospects. We have to persuade more. We have to contact more to try to talk with them about how wonderful our stuff is and how they'll get value from it.
1: They'll get value from it, yeah. And I think it's also, it's just, sellers, by and large, misunderstand. We still have this misalignment between this buying process and the selling process, yeah. which sort of triggers some of that. Because, yes, in researching the book, I would spend a lot of time Googling B2B sales processes just to see what sort of came up. And, and the fact is, when you look at even really contemporary publications about the sales process, they're the exact same sales process you learned at Xerox. Same stages, same as I learned at virtually the same time. The only thing we've done is put a veneer of technology on it. Around it, yeah. But we're still doing things our way rather than looking at things from the buyer's perspective. Right. And you think this is one thing we would have learned is, you know, for instance, why are we, if you're, a pipe, if you're a sales manager, you're doing a pipeline review with a seller, why are you referring things into your stages as opposed to where's the buyer in their stages? And I think until we close that gap, we're always going to have some of these issues, and that's gonna be that's gonna be my next book. We're gonna we're gonna tackle that one. Is how do we bring these two together? But it's you know, like take discovery for instance. You know, I love discovery. I was <laughs> one point an area where I thought I could largely differentiate myself from, in the eyes of the buyer, from perhaps the competitors. And yet today, it's it's. Even more so, I think taught as well. This is a set stage of the process, right? Because you have your stage, your discovery stage, and you have exit criteria for the discovery stage, as if it's done.
0: But and then you, you and then you have certain questions you ask, and you check right. off some boxes. Check, check, check. I've, I've asked these questions. Okay, we're done. We've I've discovered. Do you know? But there's no curiosity though, from what you're right. saying, because to me, if, if Simply asking the questions is not sufficient. It's it's the second and third level questions that come underneath it. And I know you talk about that kind of stuff too. Follow-up questions. Follow-up questions. Yeah. How many
1: simple ones? The simple as well, that's interesting. So what else can you tell me about that? Or that's no, no, interesting. Now wait, now wait, that's just
0: it. like too simple. And and yet you're, that's what, yeah. you, that's what works, right? And that's, that's what you exactly talk about. That's exactly what works. Huh? That's exactly what works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't.
1: You don't have to. I think there's this misconception that a lot of sellers f- fall prey to, which is that they need to know more than they actually do, because we all have varying levels of knowledge we acquire throughout the length of our career. But we always, in our, invariably, in our career, we fall into new situations, right? Oh yeah, and, New buyers, and new,
0: new things happening with the buyers, new products that we're selling, tons of new situations that we're going to run yeah. into.
1: Or we, we change industries, right? Or yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm. You can never acquire enough information before you go out and sell mm-hmm. <laughs> in your new job. So what are you going to do? You're going to go out and ask questions. You're going to learn from the buyers. And if you're interested in them and sincerely interested and you're making an effort to make sure you really understand what's important to them, they have time for you, and they'll give you permission like I said one of the goals of of connection and curiosity is to get permission from the buyer to stick your nose into their business <laughs> I love that <laughs> and, yes. and that's what you want to do you want to think about it that way you want you want to get deeper than super than superficial level you want to go you want to go deep
0: you' asking you can't help them unless you really understand and and the the yeah. first answer isn't always. The first answer could be a brush-off answer. You know, how are things going with this? Fine. You know, I mean, that's brush-off. Uh, but you're saying go deeper, and I love. I mean, talk more about questions and what we share in the book.
1: Right. Well, first of all, <laughs> yeah, I don't sound too cynical, but don't take what the buyer says at face value. You
0: mean, I mean they're not telling be- the truth, or are they just trying to be keep you away, or what?
1: Could be either. Could be both. Sure. I mean, it's nice to assume that people are operating with good intent and it's not like they're being bad people, but they've got their own agendas. And so you have to invest the time to try to understand what those agendas might be and how they relate to what you're trying to do with them.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So, yeah, I think when it comes to discovery, I think one of the places where people really fall short is, as you said, to get this level of understanding. And understanding what – and I, I believe that – I call in the book the most important thing, right? And as I think in every opportunity, certainly that I've worked on in my career, from uh, yeah, $10,000 deals to nine-figure deals, which I've closed, mm-hmm. there's always one thing that's more important than all the others for the buyer. And if you're able to uncover what that is and who it's most important to – then you're going to stand a better chance of being in a position to help the buyer and, and win the deal. But you have to go to that deep level of understanding.
0: And that's and a long conversation and maybe conversations with many people.
1: Many people, of course. Many. Yeah, there's always multiple stakeholders right. in, in right. decisions. But it also, it extends to, as I talk about in the book, is that everybody comes at their information gathering and their decision making from two perspectives in terms of, What's in it for the company and then what's in it for me? Yes. And so if you think there are six stakeholders in a decision, that's really twelve because everybody has two perspectives. And you want to be informed and understand what each of those perspectives are.
0: And how do you do all that? You go to
1: Well, follow-up questions, you ask, you build the connection. Yeah, they (laughs) you I Written about this yesterday on LinkedIn. I say, you know, it costs absolutely nothing to be a good person. And love it, yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah, 98% of the people agree. <laughs> Not everybody does, obviously, because no one yeah. agrees about everything. Not everybody agrees about everything these days. But but just you start from that premise and you build the credibility and trust on top of that. The customer will give you the permission to stick your nose into their business.
0: They will. They absolutely you earn the right.
1: will. You're in the right to get answers to questions.
0: You do by by the by the kinds of questions you ask sometimes the yeah. depth the the positioning you bring to the questions I think too in terms of I've worked with other people similar and these are some of the challenges that they're facing and
1: exactly and that shows exactly. that you
0: have understanding some understanding of who they are and what they're doing
1: yeah and I like I have six types of questions I sort of lay out in the book under curiosity one of the ones I use the most is what I call impact questions. Is, is impact questions designed to have people quantify mm-hmm. the impact of making a change? So it's, you know, what would the impact be if you could do X, right? Yeah, you know, and, and you're asking people to sort of make it real, right? if they have to quantify what the impact is, then it starts becoming much more real to them. And then you start having a real conversation about what's really important.
0: And what would be the impact of not changing or doing something about this well, that's problem? The other part of it. so it's not exactly. I mean the impact can be so many it can be expanded and you can even with your impact questions narrow in a, but what would be the impact on productivity? What would be the impact on right. And you can show your knowledge of the issue by expanding the impact.
1: Right. Well, and also sometimes you show your knowledge by asking the question itself. Just the right. question so,
0: itself—that's what I mean. Yeah, just the question itself. That oh, this guy clearly knows that this is behind all this.
1: Right. So yeah. that sort of also falls into a category of questions I call insight questions, which is you're asking the buyer something about their business that they could reasonably be reasonably be expected to know, but possibly don't.
0: Give me an example. And I mean, because that is really sort of it's
1: sort of it's, it's not a gotcha question. It's no. just something that based on your experience with other buyers, other so. So one I've used in my business as a consultant is because I'm very focused on sales productivity, improving sales mm-hmm. productivity, is you know, I would ask a CEO if we were meeting for the first time. So so tell me, how many hours of sales time does it take to move your average prospect from initial point of contact to an order?
0: Ooh. How and many guess how hours- many
1: have been able to answer that question? None.
0: Yeah, I mean that's an interesting how many hours of sales time?
1: Ooh. Right. Because Ooh. at the end of the day, your productivity is based on revenue generated per hour of sales time. That's interesting. Longer longer discussion. Yes. But but that's a question I think they should be able to know because they can't really understand their true capacity as a sales organization without wow. understanding that.
0: It's a great idea.
1: And yeah, they don't know. Oh. They think about it, and then it triggers a conversation about why that's important. And then off we go.
0: And off so that's an go. insight
1: question. Is, and so, okay, and,
0: give, go ahead. I'm sorry. So it's it's just
1: what you're doing is you're demonstrating a level of knowledge and uh, credibility about a subject through the questions you ask. Mm-hmm. And I oftentimes and I talk about this in the book is is I could do whole presentations with customers where I made them understand what we did without ever stating anything as a fact, but just by asking questions.
0: Just by asking questions. I've seen really good salespeople, like if they're doing a PowerPoint presentation, <laughs> they use the PowerPoint presentation with just a little bit on and then use the questions to yeah. to really talk about what matters. But you have to think of the questions first. And you, like you said, you've got what, six type of questions in the book. Right, six type of
1: questions. So this is one we were talking about I call "ask don't tell" is that when you have the opportunity to state something as a fact, pose it as a question instead. So you could say, "Oh, well, we can do X," but me,
0: how would you say it as a question?
1: Wouldn't be better is so? What would the impact be on your organization if you could do X?
0: Because when you just, just asking, let me just say when you just said what, what was the first way you said the question. Oh,
1: it was a statement, right? So we can do X.
0: And, and you know, okay, I'm now you said that I'm going, I'm leaning back. I'm going, my hands are up in front of me. It's like, I've got my defenses on the, on the rise. And you, instead you ask.
1: What would the impact be on your organization if you could do X?
0: Oh, let me think. That's, I mean, that's my reaction now as, as the person on the other end.
1: But, you know, I wouldn't ask it unless we could do X.
0: Yeah, I know. Isn't that the truth? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that true?
1: Yeah. So you've communicated the fact that you do something. Yeah. In the form of a question that communicates not only that you do it, but also that here's a great question: is, hey, Mr. Prospect, tell me, what would the impact be for you if you could do X? If you could do it. Yeah. yeah. So
0: it's. Hmm. Hmm. Now you're getting me thinking, which means you're. you're we're engaging in a conversation.
1: To, hmm. Well, it means that we're a. They're going to engage in the conversation. You're bringing something of value. They perceive value from you
0: through the questions you ask. Is that what you call your generosity, Mike? Or how would you define your? Because it is a generous thing. You're getting me to think about.
1: It is. It's part of it. Yes.
0: Yeah. Talk talk about even more. You haven't talked about that pillar yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, generosity starts with this whole idea of what's value, and so. As sellers, we oftentimes like to think we know it's valuable to the buyer. But the fact is, only the buyer can dictate and determine what's of value to them. Right? Sort of like beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Same with value. Value's in the eye of the beholder. And so, for me, I think that value boils down to one thing, which is progress, as a result of interacting with you, has the buyer made progress toward making their decision? If they did, then whatever you shared with them had value. Right. <laughs> if, it, if it didn't, it didn't. If yeah. you couldn't help them make, make progress, then you didn't have value. So did. That then becomes sort of the bottom line for every interaction you have with the buyer is, as a result of interacting with you or your content or your email or your whatever, as a result of investing this time, is the buyer closer to making their decision than they were before?
0: Yeah.
1: And if that interaction doesn't have any of that, if, that, if the answer is no, then why did you do it? Why did you consume, <laughs> why did you consume the buyer's time and why did you consume your own time for something that's perceived to be valueless?
0: Because I was told to, because that's how we're we're trained that's that we awesome. should be talking that's about this. If we ask this, we're supposed to say that if they say that. I mean, that's what we're doing. Right. And we're supposed that's, to that's do more of it. Says, right. that's, that's what the what playbook, playbook says. That's what our playbook says. Right. And the playbook isn't always right. I mean, one of the things that I, and you know, I think you and I are very aligned in terms of what makes people successful right. in, yeah. their, in their sales. And, you know, we talked about curiosity and that kind of thing, but it, there's just this whole way of going in that, you are there to help bring value. And unless you bring value, it's not worth anything to them. And, and you, right. you should be kicked out. You shouldn't belong in there. <laughs> I, well,
1: yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, as I like to pose it, is so how many times can you have a valueless interaction with the buyer before they stop giving you their time?
0: <laughs> how many times today? I mean, really, what is it today?
1: It could be you get one chance. One chance. Maybe yeah. somebody's. Maybe somebody's more forgiving. You get more. But if you've been working with a, right. a buyer and suddenly they go silent, they go radio silent. Never,
0: why? Why?
1: Why? And I, I believe, and my experience has shown, is that in the majority of cases, it's because they've made the decision, you're just not worth more of their time. Painful. Yeah. Painful. And it's not. Personal in that sense, but it is personal because it's in a it's the buyer's sort of referendum on their perception of the value you were bringing to them.
0: Right. And they'd rather read a white paper or go check something out online from somebody else that might make things clearer in terms of how they can handle the challenges or achieve their objectives and goals exactly. today. Yeah,
1: Exactly. That's a great way yeah. of putting it. And they just said, yeah, you're not worth it. You're not worth and it. And so... You have to think about it as a seller. You have to think about it in this context. Is there is no such thing as an unimportant sales touch because the buyer's judging what the return is on every single one of them.
0: Return on their time. Time and return attention. On their time and attention. Um, you talk but, about tangible and intangible value too in your book. Yeah. You spend a lot, you know, you have some great examples in there. Can you expand on <laughs> yeah, that? Why- Sure.
1: Well, we're just talking about questions. Questions can questions. be a great source of intangible value for the buyer. Um, you know, Tangible value could be, hey, a cost justification, an ROI worksheet, it uh, could be a piece of content or something. Mm-hmm. So you have to be conscious of the fact that you've got both these at play and that the intangible action times perhaps might be more impactful for the buyer. Mm-hmm. Because again, you're forcing them to think more deeply or more broadly about The challenges they have and the potential outcomes they can achieve.
0: The intangible, not just the tangible, the intangible.
1: Yeah. yeah. So it's I think as you agree, is is those who I see are most consistently successful in selling. And I like to phrase that way, because I I think we default this idea about top producers and top performers too much. And it's like, hey, most of us are just trying to do a good job in sales, right? Right. those who are most consistently successful are those who are most intentional about the actions they take. And aren't just robotically following a process, but saying, what, what does the buyer need for me at this point in time? What can I provide them to help them make progress toward making their decision? And as opposed to just whipping off a random check-in email or a random phone call or, you know, what, what is it that's going to make them or help them, excuse me, Move closer to making their decision. And as a manager as you go through, let's say a pipeline review of opportunities the seller should be able to answer that question about every qualified opportunity in their pipeline.
0: Very specifically the question is again, what
1: value does the buyer need from us at this point in time to move closer to making a decision?
0: Bingo, that's that's huge. Instead, what are they typically asked? Where do we stand? <laughs> Where do we stand? <laughs> what is our chance of closing? Where do we
1: stand with this buyer?
0: Yeah. How, yeah. how soon can we close? How soon can we expect the deal to close? Right.
1: What's your probability of closing on this one? Yeah. Oh, we've given a proposal. That means we've got a 90% chance of winning. Exactly. Um, now, the fact that 10 other people are giving proposals doesn't lower that odds at all, but a yeah. <laughs> whole different different question. Yeah. But that's, that's sort of what happens. And so, yeah, sellers, as I said, this level of intentionality just becomes, for my mind, one of the most critical things you can do is, what am I doing on this call? What am, how am I going to help the buyer move closer to making their decision? And it could be, again, could be questions I ask. could be insights we provide. Uh, you know, commercial insights we might have. We learn from other customers. Great if you pose those in the form of questions. It could be confirming understanding of something. That's really important because I believe that one of the most important sources of value you can provide to a buyer is to make them feel
0: understood. Yeah,
1: I'm sure I just wanna, but experience. I really
0: like what you're talking about is the intentionality ahead of time because um, not enough people stop to think about how much thinking is required ahead of time to ensure yeah. that you're providing a profitable. Interaction, And I mean profitable right. for the buyer, that it's brought them some good value that they want to continue the conversation, connect you with somebody else in the company, give you deeper information, expose more of what is going on in the organization. But that doesn't happen by following the script. The script is the starting point. And a lot of people think to me that the script is... Simply to, you know, to, the questions are to be asked simply to get to the point where you can give your pitch.
1: Right. Well, I think that that when you talk about scripts, I think it's important for people to understand. It's not just a script that's given to you by your company, but we all develop scripts, right? We do, <laughs> yes, absolutely. And so it could be your script, but if you're just sticking to your script and not varying from it, then that becomes problematic, right? Because mm-hmm. you're not really then digging deep enough to truly understand what's important to the buyer. Mm-hmm. And so one way to sort of think about it is, is you want to get to the point where you can ask these great follow-up questions. So again, you pose one of your, your script questions. I mean, I listen to recordings of calls where reps are so focused on going to the next question that they don't ask the follow-up question. I ask the follow-up question. Oh, that's interesting. So what else can you tell me about that? Maybe you ask that twice in a row. Ask there are different ways,
0: there' are different ways to ask that, that to same ask question it. too you know
1: right, right it's not what else can you tell me oh that's interesting tell me more about that
0: mm-hmm.
1: but buyers like generally if you've built that connection they like to open up they like to show what they know as well you get that information you just summarize it back to them you reflect back to the buyer hey this is what I think I heard you know, blah 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 is that correct they'll say yes or no if not You correct it, you get to the point where they say, yes, that's right. And then, don't move on.
0: Don't move on.
1: There's one other question you want to ask, which is a great, great question, which is, okay, so what are we missing?
0: Oh, (laughs) that is a good one. What are we missing?
1: What are we missing? So, we've gone through the whole thing. I've asked my follow-up questions, gone down layers, how it's important to your organization, your team, and you. We reflect back. Yes, that's yeah. you've got the understanding of it. Perfect. Okay. So what are we missing?
0: What are we missing? I've never heard anybody share that question. What are we missing? It's like it creates a whole new conversation.
1: Oh yeah, because probably like,
0: things that you had no idea about, and maybe that the buyer has suddenly realized too.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's another conversation trigger for sure.
0: Well you Empires have lots like. of you have a lot of those in the book. I mean there's a ton of different things that you share that get people thinking that it's really, you know, structural. I mean in terms of here's how you can do things. And right. here's a here's a process and methodology and, and and you know, from the first time I read it, I mean I've read a ton of sales books in my life, I got to say, yeah, because yes, sure. I sort of love sales books and and yours was easy to read, simple um from that perspective and it's not Giving the history of sales or whatever—it's really kind mm-hmm. of getting into the you know the real thing about interacting with customers and ensuring good interactions and you know the those four pillars that you have and then some really good rock solid advice.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, it's it's I just reached this stage where I think part of the book comes from this frustration that we're still indulging in these these oh, yeah. selling out behaviors and. Yeah. I firmly believe that we could stop all of them today. You know, people read the book, they identify the selling out behaviors. Oh. You could stop those today, and the world would not notice at all.
0: No, they'd be glad that they they'd be glad that they they'd were gone, glad and that those did. irritants were no longer <laughs> I, in their lives, you know. Right. But the selling they, in behaviors are so crucial.
1: Right. Well, I asked the question in the book. I you know, relate a story and I've you know asked this for a number of years, but I said, you know, the question a buyer will never ask you. This is, puts it in perspective for sellers. A buyer will never say, you know, Jill, I like you. I, and I like your product. I think we want to buy your product, but you know, you're just not salesy
0: enough. Could you be more <laughs> could you be more salesy? Yeah, I'm used to, you know, some pressure, you know, from people. Yeah. You haven't you haven't tried the the angled clothes on me, or the Ben Franklin <laughs> clothes on me, and I haven't heard the fear of <laughs> the, 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 the objection handling technique that you're so, so many of your yes. colleagues are good at. No, they don't say that.
1: Over, overcoming objections, yes. Um, so, no one's ever going to ask you to be more salesy.
0: Never. That so, why, why do we do it? <laughs> it it's <sighs>
1: valueless for the buyer, it's valueless for you. No, as it's more it's
0: it's less than valueless for the salesperson because you have invested sure. you have invested all this time to get finally get somebody on the phone to have a conversation, have a meeting right. with them or whatever. And and then you blow it. You with blow this. it because of your own right. behaviors um, haven't supported what the buyer needs from you. Right.
1: And when we talk about behaviors, again, it's these learned behaviors. Yeah. So instead, as I advocate in the book, is just be a human being first.
0: Well, that's a, don't you think that's asking a lot of people? <laughs>
1: uh, I hope not.
0: No, I hope not.
1: I I'm very optimistic. And I think that if we don't want to see this all go away, right? Mm-hmm. if we're going to continue to provide negative buying experiences for our customers, then we're motivating them to find other ways to buy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not happening in a vacuum. No, No, it's not. And, and the same thing is true with this negative perception that people have of salespeople, mm-hmm. if I, it's oftentimes unfair, but it's oftentimes based on past behaviors. That's right. And so we have it in our power to change. And yeah. part of my mission with this book is to say, look, you don't have to be that way. In fact, if you don't act, if you don't sell out, you've got a brighter future yeah. in sales and your buyers have a brighter future as well. Because they need your help. They want your help. They, they they don't want to make these decisions on their own. That's why sellers exist because buyers want, they understand that they've got a limited set of knowledge, right? The whole, you've probably read about this whole issue of weak ties and strong ties mm-hmm. in relationships. And so when people work together, they form strong ties. So what happens is uh, there was a sociologist who wrote about this a number of years ago is saying, what happens is the information they know becomes redundant because they all know the same information and they reinforce that information with themselves and that thus becomes the status quo. So what your buyers need are more weak ties with people they don't know as well, like with salespeople, yes. to provide them new ideas and fresh ideas to help them make progress in their own work. So people need sellers.
0: They really they do. Work. They really do. And, and And, you know, I do think that, you know, Genuine questions that are that you're really curious about are, are so crucial. And and one thing I found personally is when I moved into that kind of behavior, the selling in behavior, mm-hmm. not the selling out behavior, by identifying the questions and having thought of them with intentionality, as you talk about ahead of time, the burden was removed for me to be to carry the pitch. And I could mm-hmm. I could relax and have a genuine conversation with another right. human being about what mattered to them and how I could help them achieve what was what their goals were. It right. was it was actually a relief to yeah. move into that behavior and not feel like my job was to you know persuade them. And I hate the word I hated the thought of persuasion. And I think a lot right. of sellers do, but they don't know what else to do.
1: Well, now they do. Now they now do. Now they have. Now they have a yes. book to help them do that. Yes, they do. And I think, I, and I think back to what you're just saying is, is yeah, I hate using the words friends and friendship when we talk about relationships and sales because we're not trying to make friends with our buyers. But no. as a, as a frame for people to think about is, let's assume you're meeting somebody in a social situation for the first time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you? Pitch them on something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and if I mean, so, do you think they'll want to meet you again?
1: <laughs> right. Is that your is that your go-to behavior? You're gonna pitch them on something? Right. You know, somebody asks you, oh, you know, Joe, how are you doing? What what do you do? Yeah, you know, let me enroll you in my friend funnel and and <laughs> so on. It's of course not, right? You right. don't do that. So why do we do that when we meet people in a business context?
0: Because, because we're, we're salespeople a- and that's our job, right?
1: But that's the that's the wrong perspective. The wrong we've educated right. we've educated people in to think that that's your job. Your job is not to pitch. Your job is not to persuade. Your job is to listen and understand,
0: and help them achieve.
1: Help them achieve what matters to
0: them. to them. Yeah, right. Exactly. I, mean, I think it's,
1: to me one of the more important lines in the book is this understanding is what is your job, and I just keep coming back to it because it's helped guide me through my career. In part because I was really uncomfortable, as you said, with the other, other way of behaving. Right. And I was determined I didn't want to be that way and couldn't be that way. And I found that, yeah, helping people get what's important to them was the path to getting what I wanted as well.
0: It's funny, isn't it? By focusing mm-hmm. entirely on them, you create the outcome you want.
1: Yeah. And yeah, I think Zig Ziglar says something was in Zig that said, yeah if you focus on getting enough other people what's important to them you get yeah. what's important to you or help people get whatever they want out of life yeah. you get what... Yeah, I mean it's it's so true. It really and, is. Yeah. And I don't it doesn't need to be so hard. And so part of it is sort of the you know the sales cultures that we create and a large part of this responsibility for change rests with leadership as I write in the book. Uh That they need to understand that some of these processes they've created, they're so activity-based, are actually antithetical to success at both an organizational and an individual level. And they need to learn to get comfortable with giving people the freedom and the autonomy and the agency to make choices about how they sell in order to become the best version of themselves.
0: Well, let me just piggyback off of that and say, you know, I agree that I think a lot of managers are out there and, and you know, if they're following the process, the prescribed process. Um And there are better ways to do things. But I think um, here's what I think people can do. I think your book is a good study guide. and mm-hmm. And I think... For teams to get it for the team and, and to have conversations once a week about a different chapter. I mean, nobody has to read the whole thing if they don't want to all at once, although it's an easy read. But literally to have chapter discussions among your team to focus on what are we really saying and what might we do differently? And how can we each look at our own uh, sales interactions mm-hmm. in, in that we've had that have been successful in this past week? Um, or have not resulted in the you know, the outcomes that we'd like to see? And how can we take some of the ideas in the book and and leverage them?
1: And to your point, we don't have to guess anymore because increasingly we're recording those conversations. That's so right. we can go back and we can listen to the Bingo. recordings, and we, you know, we can coach and yes. collectively coach as a group and say what could we have done better collectively or individually right. to create the experience the buyer needs in order to make a decision.
0: And I think that's so important because then, you know, it's not just yourself doing it. You've you've got you've got recorded, you know, examples, and you can hear good from other people. You can share your good, um, and it can lift the whole team in the process. But I do think it should be studied, and I do think this is the kind of your you know your book is a good tool to um, start Uh something like that out with right now, because it's it's not a it's not a. 400 page book with little, you know, with <laughs> no. little, with little types, you know, it's, it's, 90, a petite book. it's a petite book, but it's provocative and it's useful. And, and I think both of those are important. Provocative. I mean, it's challenging people to look at sales differently and to open your mind about what's possible and how you as a seller can create a greater return on your time investment.
1: Exactly. That's very important.
0: Get the results you want. And every sales leader should be thinking of that, too.
1: Yeah, you, you raise a really great point. Is if you're in sales and you're investing time and energy and so much of yourself, and you want to succeed, then yeah, invest in learning how to do it in a way that increases your odds of succeeding.
0: I mean to me that makes all the sense in the world to do that. And and I do think you need outside um influences and seeing other things and reading books right. and newsletters that are helpful, listening to podcasts. I really think that all that stuff is important. And you have to educate yourself not just in sales, but also in the things that your customer cares about. And that is our job really.
1: Yeah. Well, I find it sort of one of the ironies of this world we live in that and work in and sales world is, you know, talk to Sales leaders and they'll talk about what they're trying to do to grow the capabilities of the organization over the next year, and this is the training we're gonna do and so on. And I'll say, okay, interesting. So you're gonna invest in this type of training. Did you ask your buyers what they need from your sellers?
0: <laughs> well, wow. Well, Andy, you're getting a little personal there, you know. I mean, <laughs> no, most of them say they don't, right?
1: Almost all of them say no, Almost they don't. And, but that's where you should be thinking about. But right yeah. even you as an buyers? individual if you're concerned mm-hmm. about your ability to succeed is have you asked your buyers
0: right
1: what you could have done better what they could have used from you that you weren't able to provide yeah. and the fact that organizations are making these types of decisions without
0: and spending really millions and millions of dollars yeah
1: right understanding what the buyers need from them uh, it's it's a mistake and so it's again time to remedy that mistake as well
0: it's a costly mistake not just for the the Millions that are spent on training every year, but all the time of your salespeople that's invested non-productively and, and behaviors that actually reduce sales.
1: Yeah. Well, again, gets back to the buyer. It starts yeah. with the buyer. I mean, this book fundamentally is about creating a positive buying experience mm-hmm. and even take this down to the level of the individual seller. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have the same question I ask Hiring managers when they're putting together job descriptions for sellers. It's like, okay, well, these these attributes that you've listed, are they important to your buyer?
0: <laughs> I must be highly persuasive or whatever, right? Highly oh. persuasive, a hunter? Hunter. A closer. Oh, God, I don't want to deal with a hunter as a buyer. Yeah. But you I know, mean, you know, you talk about the things that you see missing in sales training. The biggest thing I, I see missing too is an immersion in the customer. I mean, who right. are these people? What is this world we're walking into? Because you can't be doing the things that you're describing here unless the more well, the more you know about your buyer and you're taught about your buyer and the, the more you keep getting information about your buyer, the mm-hmm. better value you can provide in every single interaction.
1: Yeah. And I think this also speaks to uh, this is a slightly different topic, but is you know, as you learn how to create these positive buying experiences for your buyers. As a seller, think about being a little more patient before you jump to the next opportunity. Take what you've learned and then apply it to new buyers in your field. Exactly. Is give yourself the chance to experience success at a higher level. because mm-hmm. And if you're just jumping you know, every 18 months, and I did some of that in my career as well, right. I make no mistake, but it's, I found that I had the biggest leaps in my career in those times when I stayed longer at an organization- and built on what I was learning, so I could really get this this level of mastery. So, urge people to sort of say, "Okay, once I learn selling, in start applying it to my customers. Learn about my customers. Maybe give myself at least another whole accounting cycle <laughs> before I decide
0: <laughs> an <laughs> Sorry, accounting decide cycle. Before
1: sure, before I decide to jump to the next one. Yeah, because your your wallet will thank you when you do that.
0: It, it absolutely will, and your own confidence will grow. In terms of what you know what you feel capable of doing and, and then you'll learn, have learned things that you can take further with you and that are I don't know there's just like, they're, they're deeper knowledge.
1: yeah yeah, I, too often I hear the story about you know Aes that bounce yeah, Well bounce too quickly. yeah bouncing. I mean this is sometimes hard to get the, the advancements you want mm-hmm. within your organization or mm-hmm. yeah, maybe it's just not a perfect fit and you think there's someplace else. fine. Nothing, yeah. no criticism about that. But just you have to make sure that you learned something that you yeah. can really apply. Because too often you hear about reps jumping and yeah, landing start with a splat because it wasn't right in several dimensions, and maybe they just weren't ready for that that jump. But you know the money was tempting. It's hard to blame them. They got you know yeah. maybe dangled some stock, sure. But sometimes it's good to wait and maybe turn those down, and then you're literally a year later. Get a better deal.
0: Yeah, I think so too. I mean, to me, it's all about mastery. What does it take to become a master of what you're doing? And you don't have to stay in a job for a lifetime, you know. But there is a depth of mastery that I think that you learn, and as you progress in your career, you can get better and better, or you can repeat the same mistakes over and over again, which I'm afraid too many people do.
1: Right, and if you grow. Yeah. Then you get you get rewarded for that, yeah. And that's really the key. I mean, the yeah. rewards may not be tomorrow, but rewards will come at a higher degree of probability as your mastery grows. So,
0: let me just say, if I was a rep reading your book, um, it, it would give me different questions to ask if I was looking for a job. It would make mm-hmm. me think differently about um, the type of environment I might be going into. And um, how they worked with their sellers, bit I mean, well, just,
1: I, I, I was going to ask you a question because it's this is something I, I feel very strongly about is is yeah, you know, cutting out the extremes. I think in general, it's not like there are good salespeople and bad salespeople. I think there's good fits and bad fits, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, I've seen numerous occasions. Yeah, people that may were working for me that just weren't a fit working in the organization I was in at the time. Right. Who left and did quite well.
0: In a different or, field, in a different area of sales, that had a different way of working. Right. Right.
1: And and so I think fit to your point that you're making as a seller as you're looking for this next role, whatever that is. Right. It's about the fit. You know, is it somebody that you're going to learn from? Is it? A company that's invested and in, sincerely invested in your success um, you pay attention to those things because that those can be more important than comp plan and the customers you're selling to and so on in terms of helping you succeed oh, at that yeah. role right It's yeah not every job's gonna be a success. yeah, we're not going to have uninterrupted successes I certainly didn't have them like nor did
0: I <laughs> but they yeah. had some valuable learning experiences. <laughs>
1: Yes, I think we all all have had. Um, And that's fine. Mm -hmm. But it made me more sensitive to the idea of of fit. And, again, I'll just say, I think if you're struggling, yeah, think about the fit. Think of the situation you're in. And then read my book. I'll put the plug in in there at the end. Okay.
0: No, it's been been fun to talk about your book today. Thank you so
1: much for joining me. Yes.
0: Yes. Well, I, I... like you, you're my friend. And I think you're like one of my smart, really smart friends who gets sales really well. And I'm delighted to be able to talk with you about your book. And I hope a lot of people get it because it's good. And when I say good, I, I'm not trying to, you know, oversell it. It's really good in a rock solid way. It's, it's meaty, but it isn't, filled with junk. <laughs> you <know? laughs> you well, know, thank sometimes, my editor for that. Yes. Yeah, no, well, sometimes you get these books and it's like, oh, they could have said what they said and, you know, one third the space. And you say what you need to say and you make it clear and, and it's practical, useful. And to me, if you're in sales and you're looking to get better, you need something that's practical and useful that that shows you the way that can help you get better. And that actually works. <laughs> you know? It's not about thank you. pitches and everything. Yours is really what works for people yep, yep. who want to be good at selling.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, and it's, I think it's kind of funny, too, and, and good stories. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> yes, it's, it's yes. fun to read.
0: Well, that's what makes it fun to read is that you do yeah. insert different stories and you show these things, but you don't fill it a bunch of garbage, you know?
1: No. No, I said I had a very good editor. So, all right, Jill, well, thank you so much for joining me.
0: My pleasure. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Jill Conrath, for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.